So what are we protecting? What are you protecting? What am I protecting? I didn't uh, look this up um, on the internet. What are the most uh, protected places on the planet? And I came across an article written by a locksmith, <laughs> of all things. And um, so, you know, out of all of the, the places that we see where, you know, no one can go, one of them, these aren't in any particular order. I think this might be the, the hardest one is, the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, uh, which is that place, uh, apparently the gold is in the basement. I think one of the, yeah, <laughs> the uh, the conspiracy theorists say, uh-uh, there's nothing there. That's, yeah, whatever. They're pretending at least. I think in one of the, the uh, Die Hard movies, uh, somebody robs the, this bank, yeah, um, Anyway, of course, Bruce Willis catches them. So, uh, well, was you <laughs> can't complete that line. But uh, here's the uh, Svalbard Global Seed Vault in Norway. Sval, Svalbard, guarded by Sven and Svord and all those guys. Uh, yeah, that, that's a hard place to get into. If you're like, hey, can I get a pack of basil? They're gonna be like, uh, no, thank you. Uh, anyway. Uh, oh, by the way, this is—it's uh, designed to uh, withstand a meteorite impact and a nuclear impact. There's something like a, over a million different varieties of seed in there. Seed, yeah, seed vault. That's all they got there is seeds, which is funny that they put it in a place where nothing grows. Uh, Fort Knox, no gold there either. No, no. <laughs> Oh, God. Area 51? Yeah, there, that's where it is. Guarded by this guy right here. Uh, and we have, what else? Who, do, who else do we got? We've got the White House. Uh, that's hard to get into. No? Not back in the Clinton days. It was like, yeah, come on in, you know. But no, they had to change that. And then uh, the Vatican. The Vatican um, Archive. I looked. I've got a little particulars on there. Something like 50 miles of bookshelves, and you have to be, if you can get in, which you have to be a professional historian or something of the like. You have to be over 75 years old, right? They're like whatever you see, you're going to be dead soon, or something like that. That's their guard. And the last one is the Mormon's Church's Secret Vault, which is super hard to get into. And uh, I wonder what they're hiding in there. Joseph Smith, but I don't know. <coughs> what are we guarding? What are people guarding? What What is important to guard? And that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's what we look at today. Because... When it comes to God's love, which is our subject, the we um, <coughs> agape doesn't guard anything that is of little importance. Um, we give it away. And that includes all the gold, all the secrets, uh, whatever else people are guarding. I, I looked up other things I found were like secret party spots for the rich and famous where they go certain times of the year on these retreats to certain secret places and do whatever nefarious things these rich people are doing. And, you know, <clears throat> if they're, what are they doing that needs such secrecy? Well, it can't be good, right? <clears throat> so what are we doing? You know, when it comes to agape love, our lives are open to all, just like the Lord's was. What did he protect? Nothing. Other, well, not nothing, but nothing of material, worldly value. And we must not either. And we, we find ourselves falling into that very easily, even as believers. So we're going to start again in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to see how uh, Paul here describes love as what it doesn't do. And the things that it doesn't do is protect certain things that people think are worthy of protection. And they're not. 
So let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for his insight that he always gives us in teaching us how to be like him, which is to be more set free and happy and at peace. And so let's bow our heads and pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came and showed us the way, the new and living way that he opened to us through his sacrifice and death, his judgment for the sins of the world, and his resurrection and life. If it weren't for him, Father, we would have none of this. And we are so grateful that we're born in this age. We are very fortunate, all who are born after the cross, Because as soon as we believe, we are with you forever. There's nothing to earn. There's no law to follow other than the person of Christ, the law of love. We thank you, Father, that through your Spirit, which you have given us to indwell us, that we can see and grow in grace and knowledge and see these beautiful things that you have provided for us in this world that are right with us, right in us, and right all around us. All of this is unleashed by your love in us, which you have given us. It is a part of your nature that you have given to each believer. So, Father, through your Spirit, we ask that your Spirit would enlighten our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So everybody's guarding something, and, and all the, the only thing that really needs to be guarded is something that most people could care less about, which is ironic, but it bears the truth of history, um, you know, and what is truly valuable to the human race. And and you look through the scripture, uh, you know, what's what's super valuable, like say in the book of Proverbs, is wisdom. And all of chapter 8 is about this in in the book of Proverbs, how uh, wisdom is far more precious than gold and jewels. Um, and, And, you know, how do we get wisdom? And wisdom is a bit deeper than knowledge, but it's definitely associated with knowledge. And wisdom comes from the application of knowledge to life through faith. Uh, We learn what the Scripture says, and by faith we follow what the Scripture says. And then we discover things about what the Scripture, or really about God. We're discovering things about God and His nature and, you know, his, His history and what He's really doing. For us, we saw on Sunday how the the Exodus generation marching through the wilderness is truly an image, a picture of every single believer's journey, and that that wilderness journey is our trials, our difficulties, the pressures, the problems that all of us face that are absolutely necessary if we're going to apply the things that are true. If, and, you know, if we, we pass those tests by faith, we'll have a, it won't be easy, but the journey through the wilderness will be shorter. Or we won't, let's say we won't remain there as long. I mean, the Israelites could have been there for just a few months, but what they, re, they were really there for 40 years, and a great many of them died there. And the reason being is because they didn't believe. So what did they guard? You know, what was important to them? And it wasn't the right thing. And that's what that's all it is, right? If if we value these things, like the love of God, which is really to value God himself, then we'll do whatever it takes to protect it in our hearts. And how we do that is you know, we're really God, God is the one who protects it, but we, we protect love by maturing. We protect the, um, the value of the Word of God by learning it you know, we, and, and applying it. You know, it's, it's not something that we store away on a shelf or in the, some vault in the Vatican. There's a lot of pages down in that vault. But you know, all of it, it doesn't matter at, at all. There's a, there's a very old copy, a full copy of the both Old and New Testament down there, 
which has been actually revealed to the world because some guy went in there and read it and memorized it. It's Codex Botanicus. Uh, I think it's uh, that's uh, Codex A. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't mean anything if it's not in your heart. And the Word of God is meant to show you God. If you don't know Him, it uh, means that you haven't lived the Word of God. And so what's valuable to the human race? And so for us, looking at again, uh, starting in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. So the first two are what love is. And I've saved these until a bit later. I'm doing all the nots first. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could tell you I had some grand, like, really cool scheme for this, but I don't. Love is patient. Love is kind. We'll look at that a little bit more. Patient means that you will wait for the proper opportunity that will be the best for another. And, uh, patient means that I could act right now, but I'm not going to, but acting later would be better for that person. I could speak right now, but speaking later would be better for that person because love is always about others. It's not patient for me. It's patient for you. And so that's what patience is. Love is kind. We all know what kind is. And and when we say, well, all right, so everybody, you know, everybody kind of knows this, true, but who's kind to their enemies? Who's kind to the complete stranger who's kind of, uh, hard to be around. Who's kind to the super duper annoying? All right? And yeah, Christ in us, he's kind. And, and therefore, he said, love as I love. And here it is. My love, Christ said, is kindness to others, all others, no matter who they are. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does that look like in our own lives? Love is kind. Love is not jealous. The word jealous there means to be inflated with rage. Love does not brag. That's actually another. uh, Jealous is more of a word of passion. Bragging is a word of inflation. Is not arrogant. Arrogant is a key term in this whole letter that Paul uses this term for arrogance to the Corinthians multiple times. And so these, again, are the nots, not jealous, not bragging, not arrogant, doesn't act unbecomingly. We already noted that one. That means in all situations we do what is proper. So it's not uh, what could be unbecomingly means ill-mannered. So based on the situation, we do what is necessary. We have appropriate behavior in all settings. And that means we have to have self-control, right? Self cannot be the center if that's going to be true. So it's not ill-mannered, doesn't seek itself, does not seek its own, is a little vague there, but doesn't seek itself. And that means that it has no self-interest, no interest in self, that uh, there's nothing, and there's that protection. Am I guarding myself? No. People say, people know about you. (laughs) Okay, great. Some people know your sins. Unfortunately, yes. But you see, what, what, what will people guard? I mean, and it's not like we're going around telling people what our flaws are, but if they, all of us have them. And when they come out, when they come out, not if they come out, you know, all right, I'm still growing in grace and knowledge. And, and you know, to for some have said, well, all right, I'm going to exhibit my flaws to everybody and say this is the grace of God. That's not it. That's not it. Love doesn't magnify sin, ever. It just, I have nothing to guard in me other than Christ. That I guard. You know, all of us have shortcomings, all of us, uh, and we're always going to have them. None of us are getting sinless here, not in this life. And I'm not guarding that. I'm not guarding some image of myself that is greater than what it is. But what I am guarding is Christ in myself. That I will not allow. But And and who's going to take, who's going to, damage Christ in you. Not, not a who, it's a what. 
Because people can't do it. Nobody can go into your soul and damage that. You can allow, however, sinful things and temptations to damage that. And I say, well, you know, if you're tempted in an area that you're very often tempted in, if you want to guard what is in you, which is Christ in you, your hope of glory, if you want to guard that, you will start saying to yourself, no. I don't want that, even though it gives me a momentary pleasure, it damages my relationship with Christ. It damages the manifestation of Christ in me. I don't want that. Why? That's agape. And why do you have agape? Because you have God's life in you. No, I'd say in you. You are God's life. You're divine. You're not a God, but you have divine seed. That's the new creature in Christ is created in the image of Christ, Colossians 3.10. It's made for this. You were born again for this. So that doesn't seek itself. Alright, so what we're going to do today is look at is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, and does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There's three of them. It's a lot, but they're very much related, so I'm hoping I can get us to see what they are uh, pretty well. And that's what you got to do, because we'll always be returning to this definition of love because it's so full. And, and so if you get an idea here when we come back to it, and, you know, you'll get more, more depth. I don't think at one go you can dig the full depth of this, even if it was your hundredth time studying it. But there's always going to be more. So it doesn't brag, is not, sorry, not jealous, doesn't brag, not arrogant, doesn't act ill-mannered in any situation, does not seek itself, and then isn't provoked. Uh, so agape is completely not self-centered. All right, that's put awkwardly, but agape gets rid of self-centeredness. Agape is uh, not compatible with self-centeredness. And so, and again, where does agape come from? It's from the eternal life that you have. God has given you his life and that life loves. We've just got to mature this love in us. In contrast is eros love. Eros love in Greek Hellenistic culture was a love uh, that is in opposition to agape because eros, even though it did good and, and seeks good, because it's still around us, nobody calls it eros anymore, but eros love does good, but always with self in mind in the end. And, and Eros will put self off for a while, but it always comes back to it. it. It's always calculating. So Eros was the name of, that's the Greek name of Cupid. Cupid is the Latin term for this child of um, Venus or Aphrodite. Her, um, and I got to read some of the mythology today. It was a great fun. I love the stories. Uh, Eros uh, or Cupid, actually, uh, there was a girl, uh, Psyche, not Psycho, her name was Psyche, who was the most beautiful of women on earth, and Venus became very jealous of her. And Venus sent her, her son, who's always into mischief, Cupid, to go and make, he, she said, make her fall in love with the ugliest of ugliest of people. And he's like, no problem, Mom. So he goes, and when he sees her, he falls in love with her. And he doesn't shoot her with his arrow. And there's this whole sordid story about how uh, he doesn't show himself to her, but he's invisible and marries her and sets her up with all this riches and a mansion and all of this, but she never gets to see him. And then she finally does tricks him into showing himself, and off he goes. Breaks her heart. And this whole thing happens. So in the end, they get married, and Psyche is made a god, goddess, by Zeus, Jupiter. So, and it just shows you this, and it's a beautiful story. It's actually super fun. But, um, you know, in the end, even... 
Cupid himself gets a beautiful girl for his wife who becomes a goddess. Right? And he did good. He gave to her. He gave her money. He loved her. He was good to her. But in the end, he's really high. You know, they go up. Everybody goes up. And that's what Eros is. It's always that. <clears throat> so Eros has self at its self center, ultimately. Ultimately. And it seeks its own interests. Like uh, Cupid is a suitor. And it's interesting that the, the god of love in Greek mythology has a weapon. I mean, he's got a bow and arrow. Right? That should tip you off. He's after something. He's a clever hunter. He's after something. And the same is true of human love. Now, Christian love, agape, has been absorbed by eros in the world. People saying doing kind things, giving to the poor, doing all of this stuff. Not that there's anything wrong. We see it here. Agape is kind. We should be kind. We should be giving. But if you're giving and you're kind ultimately with self, as right, I want everybody to see how kind I am. Or I want to be elevated in the church. Or I want, uh, I want that pretty girl as my wife. And then God comes along and says, I want you to give and ask for nothing. Expect nothing. In fact, I want you to be a servant like you're washing their feet and expect zero out of it. And that's what agape does. And some will even do that. See, well, like, like, aren't I the greatest martyr who's ever lived? In the second century, after well, it was really the third century, because there were a bunch of martyrs in the second century, like the generation after the apostles. There were a lot of martyrs because of the Roman Empire. But then when Christianity was accepted by Constantine the emperor, there's no more martyrs. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. They weren't persecuted anymore. Not by the Romans, anyway. And so, you know, there were a lot of Christians who wanted to be martyrs. And they put themselves in positions to be martyrs because they so admired the martyrs of the past. They said, like, I want to be a martyr. They said, like, why do you really want to be a martyr? Ultimately, you die, and then you think, well, I'll be famous. They'll build statues or whatever. What is your ultimate goal? That's not agape. Agape comes from a completely different place. So And I looked up in Norse mythology, because that's the other mythology that's fairly popular. And in Norse mythology has a goddess of love called Freya, and she is just she's pretty much a whore. The, <laughs> she sleeps with everybody. Everybody in Asgard has slept with this woman. They said even the elves. <laughs> she slept with the elves which I found kind of funny. But uh, anyway, oh, she, and, uh, she has this beautiful necklace. How did she get the necklace? Well, she saw trolls making this necklace. They live underground, kind of like in Lord of the Rings. And uh, they're underground making this beautiful necklace. She falls in love with the necklace. She says, what can I give you for the necklace? They're like, nothing. She's like, come on, what do you want? And there's four trolls, and all four of them say, sleep with us, we'll give you the necklace. And she's like, oh, guys are gross. But it's a nice necklace. So she sleeps with them. She slept with everybody. And that's, you know, Norse mythology, that's why you don't hear so much about it. Right? Because Greek mythology, they went into more, uh, yeah, the stories are a little bit more virtuous, I guess. Anyway, when it ca- this uh, Eros love doesn't only happen in romantic love, but all loves in all loves that are not based upon agape, it is essentially that what we are after, even the love of Plato was a big fan of of Eros. He used that word, tried to actually disassociate Eros from uh, base um, physical desire. He didn't want anything to do with that. And he he used Eros to 
be a way in which mankind can love knowledge and reason and goodness and virtue so that he can go to heaven. So it was basically Eros became the love of doing really hard things, good things, so you get to heaven. So ultimately, you benefit, even though along the way, you sacrifice. That's Eros. Agape, you get nothing. You get heaven? No, you already have it. I get divine life. No, no, no. Agape comes from divine life. You already have it. So what am I gaining here? You gain. You gain. what You, you get to live what you've already gained. That's what it is. You get to live out what you've already gained. And so the reward, is there a reward? Is Absolutely. The reward is peace and happiness. And loss of self. The prison. Like self is a prison. Because you're guarding something that is valueless. So, love is not provoked. Uh, this, the heart of this word means to exasperate or to irritate. It's only used here and in one other place in the Bible. Uh, it is reaching a level of exasperation... It is one who resides somewhere between irritation and anger. Uh, so how often have you been there? This is your word. Provoked. In the Greek. It's only used twice in the Bible. Uh, this is someone who takes offense. Like provoked, right? Someone who takes offense because... And I've got that. Look at that. See that? There's my little graphic. Here it comes. <laughs> Self-regard is wounded by a sharp point. Like if you, you track the etymology or the history of this word, that's how it's used. It's only used twice in the Bible, so we go look for it in other... Well, not me. <laughs> I'm not that good at Greek. But others have looked and you know see how it's used in other Greek literature. And it means to be punctured in some cases. Wounded, punctured by a sharp point. You see, so what wounds you? Well, what gets wounded is my ego. Something is said to you that hits. You know, you're not all that smart. (laughs) You're not all that funny. You're not all that good. You're not all that, all the things that you want to be. Why are you protecting that? How smart are you? Well, compared to what, right? Isn't it relative? And it's not that God wants us to be dumb. You know, we're not to be infants in knowledge. Infants in evil, yeah. But, you know, what what are we protecting here? What is it? It might not be knowledge. It might be your looks. It might be your stuff. It might be your reputation. It might be any number of things. It might be a flaw that gets exposed I mean, how many people in this world are walking around really with masks on and nobody really sees who they really are? But you see, the person who has agape in public, private, in a small group, in a big group, they are who they are. They know how to behave in each and they do so. But their true love is God, first and foremost. And then, and they love others because God has given them this love and they see it. You know, they see this love for what it is, divine and eternal. There's nothing in this world that is like that. Divine and eternal love. What would you pay for that? You can't. Jesus paid his life for it so that we could have it. It's used twice in the New Testament. And this, in the New American Standard, it doesn't look as bad. Acts 17, 16 Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him because he was observing a city full of idols. So when Paul, he gets chased out of Macedonia and uh, he flees to Athens and he looks around Athens and what does he see? Except statues everywhere with idols. And it says that he's provoked. And then he teaches an awesome message in Acts chapter 17. uh, And the people are like, eh, He was a complete dud in Athens. 
And then from Athens he goes to Corinth, and he's, as he's depressed when he gets to Corinth because pretty much no one listened to him, especially when he started talking about resurrection. The Greeks were like, resurrection, that is stupid. But provoked, well, here's the New Living Translation. Which this is a very good one, New Living Translation. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. That's more better. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, this word means to be irritated. This could be a sin on Paul's behalf. I mean, it's a sin and it's not love. So we don't know. Paul's not sinless, so we don't have to... That's not a point of, you know, it's not a point of contention, but... Just so you know, this is the only other place in the Bible where this word is used. And it's when Paul's around all of these idols and he's kind of irritated. And you can understand that. So this would be a refer to the process of being on the receiving end of provocative, irritating behavior in which you do not show patience and kindness. The first two. In verse 4, if you're patient and kind, you have agape, there's no amount of poking and goading you that's going to get you irritated. Don't say no. I mean, we're talking about mature. <laughs> I mean, all of us, I'm sure we're better than we used to be, you know, but we're all on our way. Love is patient because it's patient, it delays exasperation. You're patient with others. Even the irritating, I say, I'm irritated. You are poked. As one writer puts it, love is not embittered by injuries, whether real or supposed. And so, again, this gets to what are we protecting? And a part of our ego, you know, what is it in there that you're protecting? God wants you to let that go and protect and not not be, you know, not value nothing, but to value him, value his word in you that you protect. If someone comes to you and says, you know, Jesus isn't God, you're ready, you know, not to attack them, but you're ready. You're protecting that truth. You stand firm on that truth. If someone speaks lies about the Lord or about the Word or about the church or about, you know, someone you know or love and you're ready to give a defense, you protect that. You protect others. But rightly so, you know, in a right way, in a patient way, in a kind way. And we'll get to that in the next word because the next word, this, not the next one, but the one after that, which is this rejoicing in wrongdoing. That's my hope, that I catch someone in a failure so I can bash them over the head with it. And that, that is what agape is not. In other words, when, when someone fails, we want to help, not put down. How can I help? Uh, at Corinth, you know, self-interest is like uh, castle walls. Right, and there's your little treasure inside. That's my personal graphic there. You're welcome. Took me about 10 seconds to make that one, as you can see. Uh, this, you know, a lack of self-interest allows very effective encouragement and comfort to others because you're not protecting anything. Um, in Corinth, one group paraded their gifts against, uh, 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 sorry, paraded their gifts and status against others or in front of others in an ill-mannered way. You know, those who could speak in tongues and those who could prophesy, and they were all talking over each other and interrupting each other, and they fought with one another. That's this letter, 1 Corinthians. That's why Paul here is writing to them what love is. And they don't have it, many of them. They have quite the opposite. Love gives believers the ability to rejoice when others rejoice and weep when they weep. Because you lack self-interest. You want to encourage. You want to comfort. You are looking for nothing for yourself, but only for others. Only for them. 
If they need comfort, you comfort. And not, there's no calculation here. Like, oh, you know, should I comfort them? They haven't comforted me in the past. They don't deserve it. Maybe they're going to spit in my face. You know, uh, metaphorically even. What if they don't accept it? You do it anyway. Because agape is God. If another believer is blessed, we rejoice with them. Love is not jealous. If another believer is distressed, we don't whack him over the head. And uh, the illustration of, as you read through uh, the law, which I'm having a blast reading through that for a course I'm taking over the summer now, uh, reading through Deuteronomy now, and God tells the Jews in the law when it's time to stone somebody. So, false prophet, stone him. Uh, unruly teenager. Can you imagine that one? And it's after he's been warned, but he's still, as it's put in the law, he's a drunkard and a glutton. And I was like, wow, I probably would have got stoned at some point. Not in the way that I was, anyway. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> and what, it, you know, say that teenager was the guy who, you know, maybe he threw some garbage on your lawn or, you know, he drives real fast down your street. Not in Israel, but now, you know. Plays his music too loud. Say he bullied your kid in school. And you just find out little Tommy's getting stoned today. And you're like, yeah. We're going to get looking around for the biggest rock that I can huck at this kid and smash his face in. You know what that is? That is rejoicing in wrongdoing. That's what it means. That's what it refers to. And love doesn't. Oh, and if you're the person who caught the little guy... You get to throw the first rock. This is in the Mosaic Law. Or you got the adulteress, she gets stoned too. What if you're the wife that caught him? Now you get to throw the first stone. Well, you'd be like, oh yeah. Let me get up good and close. <laughs> or, you know, what Agape would do is have a broken heart over the whole thing. Uh, okay, love does not keep a reckoning of the faults of others. That's a better translation than what you have here. So read it in the New American Standard again. It says, uh, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Actually, that's that's good. That's quite good. It's the next one that's not all that great. But uh doesn't keep a record of the faults of others. Uh, and Paul's wonderful poem of love here has before us imagery throughout. Imagery is a distinct picture. It's not vague. This picture is of someone with an accountant book sitting at a desk, writing down all the things, kind of like Scrooge who was when the opening of Christmas Carol, he's at his desk writing down all the accounts of what people owe him down to the penny. And this is similar, this grumpy Christian who's, well, they might, they might not be grumpy, they don't have to be, but uh, who are keeping an account of the faults and the sins of others, especially that have occurred against them. And so if we look quickly at the images before we get to the next one. Right? This one explains itself. I don't keep an account of the faults of others. And so what that means is when I'm dealing with this person, it's there isn't the picture in my head that I'm dealing with you. Now, of course, you can't erase the picture from your head of that, whatever that person is, but I'm not going to, I say to myself, by love, I am not going to deal with them be, as a this. I'm dealing with them as God's child or as God's unbeliever who I want to be saved. 
not as you're the jerk who did that to me, you're the person who did that to me, you're the one who owes me this. What does Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so I, you know, I'm going to deal with you as God's, the one that God loves, really. And so that, and in that, I don't keep a record of the faults of others. Imagine you could do such a thing. <laughs> I mean, is it possible? Of course it is. We wouldn't be told to love if it weren't. We're commanded to do it. So let's look at uh, the pictures here. There's love. It waits patiently. Draw your own pictures here. Like you or anybody waiting patiently. Waiting for the right time. The right timing to secure the welfare of another. When is that time? God doesn't tell us, does he? We have to find it on our own, and love will do so. Shows kindness. Picture a person warm, generous, welcoming, even to their enemy. Patiently waiting. Warm, kind, accepting, welcoming to all. Love doesn't burn with envy. That's what the word jealous means. Picture a man with envy, really boiling over inside. Uh, love does not behave in, uh, sorry, love makes no parade. That's what brag means. The Greek word means to actually make a parade. And you're the subject of the parade. Can you imagine? You threw yourself a parade and you're in it. <laughs> I find that hilarious. A parade of yourself through the city. Love doesn't inflate its own importance. The image here is a balloon inflating. Inflating the idea of self-importance. But it doesn't do that. Love does not behave in an ill-mannered or improper way. We can easily picture that. In any circumstance, whatever the circumstance is, I say to myself, well, I'm here now, I'm there now, wherever. And how would the Lord, how does agape look here in me and to others, to all these people here? There's a lot of different kinds of people. My God, are they. Some are so annoying. <laughs> Some are so easy. And everything in between. How would I deal with them? And you understand that this is what gives you peace. Now, we heard uh, news today about how we, you know, Chris has to have a procedure done and we're dealing with doctors and we got good old Kaiser there. So, you know, like you're dealing with, wow, what an, out, what an operation that is. Operation. There's no operation. That's what it is, right? Anyway, we could get all upset. Well, I'm just going to lose my peace. And the people at Kaiser aren't going to be like, Joe's upset? Wow. Well, maybe we should change the schedule. They ain't going to do anything. They don't care. I'm just going to leave it in God's hands and be at peace. That I don't have to guard. I don't have to guard the schedule at Kaiser. I don't. That's not my business. How I, you know, how we are to one another in the places that God has put us in, to the people that God has put us with, that is what we need to guard and guard it with all of our heart and soul. Love is not preoccupied with the interests of self. Love is not punctured by a sharp point. Love does not keep tabs on evil. Uh, and, and you know it doesn't do evil or keep tabs on evil, and that's a that's a um, not do evil, but keep an account. That's what the word is used here. The Greek word is accounting, and uh, you know that's the picture of someone with a record book. And then lastly, it doesn't take pleasure in rebu rebuking another person's wrong. And that's the picture of you stoning someone to death with joy. 
The last one's difficult to put in a few words. Literally, it means, if we were to read it in the Greek, uh, it doesn't think evil. Uh, the word is legizomai. I thought I had it in my notes here. No, it's not. Uh, it doesn't think evil. Legizomai also means to reckon or to think. Um, and it, it goes beyond this. this. Unrighteousness is the word, not evil, sorry. It's unrighteousness is the word. The uh, word means wrongdoing. It doesn't generally just mean, hey, I don't like wrongdoing. That, you know, every Christian would say that. I don't like wrongdoing. It's not that. It's here is, I do not take pleasure. I don't charismai, this word to rejoice in. I don't rejoice in the wrongdoing of others. Why would I rejoice? Because agape is always towards others. Uh, and take, for instance, the, the Corinthians. They had strife, jealousy, and they really, and they were taking each, Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, they were taking each other to court over matters that should have been resolved by the church. And Paul says to them, look, you're, you're showing your lack of love for one another to the public arena. Like, this is stupid. You should deal with that in the church. So why were they taking each other to court? Well, it's an opportunity to put the other dude down. Put him down. Why? Well, he speaks in tongues more than me, or he prophesies. I don't have the gift of prophecy. Whatever the case may be. There was jealousy, there was strife, and they're taking each other to court. The picture here is of someone who has found the failure or the flaw of another and can't wait to put them in their place. And so in various passages, I put one of my notes in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, the man who does evil in the sight of the Lord by transgressing God's covenant. He has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or worshipped the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. If it is told to you, you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. And this is where God always... He doesn't take the word of one witness, just to throw that in there. This always has to be two or three witnesses. It has to be proven that the man is guilty. And once he has done this deed, or then you shall bring that man or woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is the man or woman, and you shall stone them to death on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. He who, uh, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the witness on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death. You throw the first stone, and afterward the hand of all the people, and you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, what's interesting is we don't have, to my knowledge, there's no record of this actually happening. It's not in written in the scripture. Did they actually do this? I don't know. Um, you know, what's the record of them keeping God's law? <laughs> Not very good. Uh, they reject God's law quite a bit in the Scripture. So was there ever a case where they did this? Uh, we don't really know. But certainly if they did and they did it consistently, if you were a person who were like, at least if you wanted to worship the sun or the moon or some idol, you probably wouldn't be telling people out loud if you knew within whenever that you'd be stoned to death. The same with the unruly teenagers or the kids who weren't obeying their parents. The same with adulterers. If it was truly executed, people wouldn't have done it. So God says you purge the evil from your midst. Now, if I'm purging the evil from my, our midst, that's one thing, and I must. Like, for instance, if there was someone here in the local assembly who was causing division, if at Grace and Truth Ministry someone was here causing division or parading sin or something like that and we had to deal with it, I would deal with it. Would I want to? No. And, and not only be, because it's awkward, but because do we rejoice in the sins and the flaws of others. You know, what 
If you love the Lord, what, why, are you, why do you get to do that? Why are you special? I, I don't know. There, there's no reason by which you know you have some kind of DNA or some kind of upbringing or you're a special kind of person. I mean, isn't the grace of God available to every single person? Every single person. And this is what agape does for us. As God loved the whole world, so do we. As that when we mature this love in us through his word, and then the next thing, the one that comes next right after this, which we talked about on Sunday, is that it doesn't, agape doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. And once self is out of the picture, then the truth has no barriers before it gets into my soul. I accept it all. There's nothing there that I need to protect. Self is out of the way and truth can come in. And if that's true, and it is, when it is, don't you want that for others? All others. Even your enemies. And it turns out that you do. Like God's love grabs hold of you, just like eternal, because it is from eternal life. And it grabbed eternal life through our Lord has grabbed hold of us. It changes us. But we have to mature it. We have to learn of it through his word. We have to apply it by faith. And when we do, we're changed. We're so very much changed. And we don't want people to suffer without God you know, it, 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 there's no reason why any single person on this planet cannot be uh, living a life, a great life, a fulfilled life of love and happiness and giving and fulfillment. And there's so many that are not. And it really, you know, why was our Lord a Lord, uh, a man of sorrows? For that reason. Why did he weep over Jerusalem? I mean, he wasn't up there at the Mount Olives saying, man, I cannot wait till I destroy this place. Because he knew what he was going to go through. He knew the suffering that he was going to go through before he got to the cross. But yet, over the city, he wept. Because he loved them. His heart was broken over Judas Iscariot, even though he knew when he called him that that man was a devil. But his heart was broken over that man. That's what agape is. It wants for others, and it knows itself, ourselves, to be completely secure in the arms of God. There's nothing for us to guard, because there's nothing for us to lose. So, what are we protecting? You know, that's the application to us now, as we leave this lesson. What are you and I protecting that is getting in the way of our learning, getting in the way of our increasing in truth and knowledge, getting in the way of our, uh, our work in the service of our Lord and our worship of Him. What are we protecting that needs not to be protected? I challenge you, as, as I challenge myself, to speak to God in prayer about that before this, the truth of this lesson, you know, gets away from our memories, which it does also easily, from myself as well. And it, it's important, I think, for each of us to speak to God about what we've learned um, and to gain a deeper knowledge of it. And say, Lord, because you may say to yourself, I don't think I'm protecting anything. And if, if that's true, bravo and thank God, right? You should be happy. Uh, but I say go to God in prayer and ask him anyway, you know, just to be sure. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your grace and mercy. Thank you that you and you alone have provided for us this truth, this love, this agape that sets us free in Jesus Christ our Lord. It comes from your life. It is your life, for you are love. May we see it, Father, in our finite little minds. May we see it and may we execute it as you would have us do through the power of your Spirit within us. We ask in Christ's name, amen.